to be away if I get to take a vacation or I'm just out of the pulpit. I know that we have uh, faithful people in our church, people like Daniel, uh, that will come into the pulpit and, and preach the Word of God um, faithfully uh, with conviction. Uh, if you didn't check out his sermon last week, you need to because um, he brought some holy fire and uh, it was good. Um, it was good for my soul to hear this week. So thank you, Daniel, for being faithful to us all the time um, in the ways you lead. Uh, as well as I'd like to thank um, our elders. Uh, the elders of our church serve our church faithfully. They serve regularly. They do a lot of different things and serve in a lot of different ways uh, that people don't get to see. Um, but mainly their hope, their desire is to see CF um, mature and grow, um, not just numerically, but um, in spiritual maturity. The elders of this church love you and love you so much, and they love the gospel, and they want to take the love of you that they have and their love of the gospel and see you grow in that. Um, and they serve in a variety of different ways. So Wade uh, and Dave, thank you for everything you do in the church, and thank you for just being men that I get to serve alongside. It is very um, just humbling, and I'm so appreciative to carry that load with you guys. So um, as I said, this morning we're going to be in Mark 7, uh, walking through uh, the book of Mark. And so today, the passage we're going to look at today um, is the kind of passage where if you just kind of opened your Bible, if you had no Bible knowledge whatsoever, and you opened it and just kind of started reading with no understanding or context, uh, this passage might be a little off-putting. Um, what we're going to read today, Jesus comes off as resistant to be a help, um, and really he comes off as just downright rude. Uh, and then if you keep reading in the second passage that we're going to look at, he's acting very strange. Jesus invades some personal space. He starts putting his fingers in people's ears. It's kind of an odd passage that we're going to look at this morning. And from the outside looking in, it seems uncomfortable and strange. But this is a reminder to us. It's a reminder for us, for one, that when we come to passages like this, we got to do some work. Sometimes we have to do some digging to understand what's going on, to understand the context of what's going on in the Bible. Uh, and also, it's a reminder to us that Jesus is not constrained to what we consider to be typical or usual. He is willing and able to meet us where we are in the ways that we need him to meet us, even when we don't understand that or realize that. Um, so that's what we're going to look at this morning. I'm going to Let's pray, and then we will jump into Mark 7. So please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for another opportunity to gather, to worship you, to be together in fellowship, to enjoy one another's presence, um, and to enjoy your presence. God, as we open your word today, you have a message for us. You have a reason for us to be in this passage on this Sunday. Uh, you have a reason for us to be here together. And so, God, we uh, ask that whatever distractions, whatever baggage, whatever things we brought in with us, Lord, that we would set those things aside to be able to focus on you, to uh, enjoy you and what you have for us this morning. Lord, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of this because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So we're going to be in Mark 7, verse 24. The words are not going to be on the screen behind me, so this is a really good week. You need to have your Bibles open. So Mark 7, 24. Um, so we'll read the passage, and then we'll go back and, and talk about it a little bit. So starting in verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. 
Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So I want to catch us up a little bit. Um, Jesus just got done. The passage that Daniel preached last week, Jesus just got done confronting the Pharisees on what is clean and unclean for a Jewish person. What defiles and doesn't defile. Basically, what rituals and traditions need to be held and not held. The Pharisees uh, held that every piece of the law had to be held, and then they made up their own pharisaical traditions that said, if you don't hold to our traditions, you are not holy, you are not as good as we are. And Jesus basically presses up and pushes it back against that notion that somehow through our actions we can earn favor with God, because that's basically what the Pharisees were teaching. That adherence to the law somehow made them better than everybody else. That they held to their law and they made up traditions, and somehow that put them on a different plane. And Jesus says, no, that's just not true. And so coming off of this intense conversation with, uh, with the Jewish authorities about what defiles and doesn't defile, what's clean and unclean, coming off that conversation, Jesus goes to Tyre and Sidon to get away and be alone. And what you need to know about these areas is that he goes to get away and be alone in a heavily Gentile area. Gentile is outside of the Jewish people, anyone who is not a Jew. So he has just made, had a major conflict about clean and unclean and honoring Jewish customs and regulations. And after declaring what does and doesn't defile a person, Jesus leaves and does something completely unheard of. He dwells in the Gentile land. The Israelites would barely travel through places. There were certain areas in the land that were heavily uh, Gentile populated. Jewish people would barely go through those places. If they had to travel, they would, and they would quickly go through They didn't want to spend any kind of time there. But to dwell, to stay in a Gentile person's house, to interact, to be part of their world, that was completely unheard of for a Jewish person, especially one of the stature and reputation of Jesus. But that's what Jesus does. He goes to get away and be alone. But he's already, as we saw in chapter 3, had interactions with people from this area. He's already done some miracles where people from Tyre and Sidon have seen that. And so he gets here, and this land that he is in is not very far from where Jesus has been living and performing miracles anyway. And so he gets to this place, and he can't hide for very long. Jesus' reputation has made it, so he really can't be alone anywhere at this point, even in a Gentile land. He can't stay hidden for very long. Very long. This woman shows up. It says in verse 26, she's a Gentile, a Syrophoenician. That's a really good Scrabble word. Gentile, generally unclean, outside of the Jewish faith. Syrophoenician, basically she is a Gentile by culture, by faith. In every which way, she is completely outside of the family of God. By her bloodline and by her choices, she is unclean in every aspect. There is no, inter- no situation in which Jesus should be interacting with this woman. To have a man like Jesus interacting with a Gentile woman breaks all kinds of taboos. See, earlier he is arguing with the Pharisees about what kind of food to eat and not eat. This is a whole different level of disregarding pharisaical tradition. She shows up begging for help. So she falls at her knees, pleading on her child's behalf. The phrasing in verse 26 is that she is continuously begging. 
Now, as we've been studying Mark, I've tried to keep us just in Mark. Um, because it's the first of the Gospels written, I want to I enjoy just the tension that we get from just Mark. But we do see this account is recorded in Matthew as well. And in Matthew's version of this account, Matthew says that she is begging for Jesus' help and continues begging to the point where the disciples tell Jesus, tell her to get away. She's, she's a distraction. She's annoying. Tell her to go if you're not going to do anything about this. She is continuously pleading. She would not stop. She is desperate and overwhelmed. Like I said, she is a Gentile by culture and religion, by choice. The chief deity worshipped in that area of Tyre and Sidon would have been Melkart. So the question has to be asked, why isn't she at Melkart's temple? If that's where she has put her faith, why isn't she at the knees of a statue? Why isn't she on her knees at the feet of a statue? Whether she has already tried that or she just has faith and has heard and knows about who Jesus is and what he can do, either way, she ends up at the feet of Jesus. She's on her knees asking for, begging for help, and Jesus responds with a really odd response. Verse 27 again. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So just at a first reading, this woman has a daughter possessed by a demon. She turns to Jesus looking for help. She is on her knees begging, and Jesus just called her a dog? I mean, how do, what, do we, what do we do with that? Like I said before, there are times where we get to parts of Scripture and we run into words or phrases or situations different than what is happening in Chicago in 2019. And so sometimes we have to do a little bit of work unpacking and asking some questions of the text. Because does Jesus just not care about this woman? Or is this like Jesus unfiltered for a second? Like what what just happened? Well, what do we know about who Jesus is? We know he is gracious. We've seen him be compassionate and gentle and kind. He is thoughtful. What do we know about the character of who God is? And you think about all of the different ways you've seen God act in your life, seeing the ways that you have seen God reveal himself in the text. These things are in direct contrast to what we are reading here. Everything that we have read, everything that we know about who Jesus is, is in contrast that says, that maybe is not how Jesus speaks. So maybe we need to do a little bit more work, because first reading comes off kind of rude, kind of harsh. But we know through all of everything we have ever read about Jesus, everything we've ever experienced about God in our own life, that's not who God is. So what do we do with this text? Well, we have to do a little bit more work. At the time, dogs were not very, really valued like they are. We live in a very canine-friendly world. Um, That was not the case at the time of Jesus. Dogs were wild, disgusting, dirty, They attacked people. They ate dead animals. They were scavengers, right? They were unclean. And society as a whole, this wasn't just a Jewish view. Like, everyone, all of society agreed, dogs are disgusting. So to call someone a dog at that time is a terrible insult. This was the go-to insult for Jewish people to call Gentiles. Because they saw Gentiles as unclean, dogs were unclean, so you would call a Gentile a dog, and that was their go-to. Jesus knows this. 
this woman probably knows this, and they both know that the other one knows it. So again, what are we, what's happening here? Though this was the common understanding of things, when Jesus talks about dogs in verse 27, he uses a word for dog that is different than typical wild, um, you know, off-scavenger kind of dog, a rabid dog. Rather, he uses a word for a lap dog, a house dog, the kind of dog that, you know, can fit in your purse. That's the word he uses here. Does that make it okay? I mean, did he still just call her a dog? I mean, regardless of whether he calls her a pit bull or a poodle, you're still calling somebody a dog, right? I don't think that's what's happening. Because that's not the God that we serve. That's not how Jesus views people. That's not how Jesus views women. That's not how Jesus views any of his creation. What Jesus is doing here is he speaks to this Gentile woman. He is speaking in a very Gentile way. He is using a metaphor that she would very well understand, that many of us can even understand. I grew up in a house pretty much with a dog in my house all of the time. I am allergic to dogs, but we still had dogs. Um, and my parents currently have a dog. And many of you know how mealtimes play out when you have a dog in the house, and it still does to this day. When I take my son over to grandma and grandpa's house and he eats lunch, as soon as they pull him out of his chair, their dog comes over and just goes to town on whatever crumbs were left over by Benji that he didn't eat. The opportunistic dog gets in and eats up. It would be really twisted if it were the other way around, right? If my parents fed the dog first, had made the food for Benji, fed it to the dog, and then whatever crumbs he left, gave it to Benji. That would be really weird. So what does all this mean? Jesus concentrated his ministry on Israel. Okay? He was sent to show them. Of the many reasons Jesus came to earth, one of the reasons he came to earth was to show Israel he was the Messiah. He was the promised one. The one that they had been waiting for for generations. The one who was going to go to war with Satan. He was that one. He was the one they had been waiting for. That all of the scriptures, all of the prophets, all of the words pointed to this one, and that was him. If you study just the geography of Jesus' ministry, he never travels more than about 200 miles from his hometown. For us, that's like never going past Green Bay if you're going to Wisconsin, never going past Springfield, never going past Ann Arbor, never going past Toledo. That's about 200 miles. That's as far as Jesus ever left. Other than a few small trips... He really doesn't even intentionally put himself in a place to interact with Gentiles. Other than this trip and two other ones, he pretty much only stays amongst the Jewish people. Any Gentile interactions he has are because the Gentiles are in the Jewish part of town. They usually come find him. He predominantly spends his time with the Israelite people. Jesus' ministry always prioritized reaching the Jewish people. After he is resurrected, though, after he goes to the cross and he dies on the cross for our sins in our place, and he is resurrected, showing his power over sin and death and hell. When he is resurrected and he gives the final great commission to the disciples, he tells them, go into all the nations. It's only at that point that he says, okay, the priority has shifted. The priority now is all people. When Jesus was on earth, it was, I'm going to minister to the Jewish people first and then the Gentiles. But after Christ is resurrected, now it's all people all the time go and make disciples. And so Jesus here, 
as he speaks to this woman, is using a metaphor about family mealtime. What he's saying to her is, look, there's an order to what I'm doing here. I have come here for the Jewish people first, but there will be a day when the Gentile people have their time as well. Jesus isn't being insulting. That's not who he is. He is instead saying to her, no, but he's doing it in such a way that leaves the door open for her to respond. He is giving her an opportunity to step into this metaphor. He's giving her an opportunity. He's saying no, but he's not shutting the door on her. There's an opportunity for her to respond in this moment. And so the woman hears what Jesus has to say and responds with great insight and wisdom and humility. Look at verse 28 again. She answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So the dogs eat the same food as the kids. And the dogs eat from the abundance of what the children had. Her response to Jesus, clearly she's not offended by what he had to say. She doesn't take it as an insult because it wasn't one. Her response to Jesus is first an understanding she is not a Jew. right? And thus she says, look, I'm not one of the children of God. I get that. She understands she at this moment doesn't have any claim. She doesn't have any expectation to be at the table with the children. She's saying, look, I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. I'm not part of that. I get that. But Jesus, I know that out of the abundance of who you are, out of the abundance of your power, your mercy, your grace, out of your abundance, there is enough for my daughter. She is declaring her faith in the abundant power of Jesus. She responds to Jesus' decision to say no, and, but she will not take no as a final answer. Instead, she steps into this metaphor. She steps into this moment Christ has created for her. Because this is much bigger than just for herself. This is for her daughter. What's amazing is the whole premise for her plea, the whole premise for this situation is not, give me what's mine. I earned this. You owe this to me because I'm a good person. The promise she lands on is, God, I acknowledge I don't deserve anything. But I do know God, Jesus, you are good, and I need some of that goodness right now. One of the commentaries I read said that she appears to understand the purpose of Israel's Messiah better than Israel does. Her pluck, her persistence are a testimony to her trust in the sufficiency and surplus of Jesus. His provision for the disciples and Israel will be abundant enough to provide for one such as herself. Basically, what a bunch of people say is, She gets it more than anybody else that Jesus has interacted with. Just has this long argument with the Pharisees, with the guys who are masters of the law, masters of the Old Testament, literally know it forwards and backwards. They don't get it. He spent the last three years with the disciples, showing his power and authority and might, showing over and over again who he is. They don't get it. But she seems to understand that there's an abundance to the power. There's an abundance to the grace and the mercy that Jesus has to give. And we see in verses 29 and 30, Jesus loves her answer. I think right here, I think this is a time where this is like a text message situation where like there's certain parts of the of this interaction that we just don't get because it's a, because it's writing, because it's not you know, we can't see Jesus's face, we can't see his body language. 
I think he laughed out loud at this. I think he was so impressed with her answer. He said to her, for this statement you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. I think this is a clever back and forth, and Jesus is impressed, and he smiles and says, yeah, go. She's fine. Your daughter's going to be fine. Jesus loves the answer. He sends her home to find her daughter has been healed. She, this Gentile woman, has a better handle on who Jesus is and what he has come to do than many of those who should have gotten it. This Gentile woman who has heard about him and has had just a very limited interaction with him, she understands more so than anyone else we have seen up to this point. She understands rightly her standing that she has nothing to offer him, nothing to impress him with. She comes empty-handed in need and realizing that it is out of the powerful abundance and mercy of Jesus that she can find help for her daughter. It is this, as one pastor said, it's a rightless assertiveness. She has no right, but she has an assertiveness to her. This rightless assertiveness that the woman had that we need to have when we come to Jesus. Whether it be the initial, the initial approach, the first time you realize, I am a sinner, I've been trying to do things my way, and I can't do it my way anymore, I need Jesus. Or, for every other time when we come to Jesus looking for forgiveness, looking for grace, we do so not because we have earned it, we do so not because we're all that impressive. We come and we humble ourselves and we say, God, you give out of your abundance. I don't deserve it, but Lord, I desperately need it. That's the healthiest place to be. Because that's the place when you are strongest and protected and cared for by your Heavenly Father. This woman went looking for Jesus on the behalf of her daughter and wasn't going to take no for an answer. She has this rightless assertiveness. Jesus gives what was needed. And immediately after this encounter, Jesus meets a man also in need and once again gives exactly what is needed, even though it looks kind of different. Let's keep reading. Let's go to verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. Taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed, and said to him, Epaphatha, that is, be open. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute and it says some people brought this man to Jesus. It says they brought him a man who was deaf and a speech. I don't know who the they is, but there were some people who cared enough about this man to bring him to Jesus. Are you the kind of they that brings the people you care about to Jesus? Are you the kind of they that begs Jesus to work in the lives of those you care about? Jesus meets this man, and man, let's be honest, that's a weird interaction, right? It's weird. He's never met this guy before. 
He pulls him off to the side. He puts his fingers in his ears. Jesus spits. He touches his tongue. Some translations translate it that he spits on the guy's tongue. It's a weird interaction. There's no other way to describe it. So why, Jesus? Why? Here's what we know. We know Jesus didn't have to do any of this. He didn't have to act in this way to heal this man. In Just in Mark, just in these first seven chapters, we have seen multiple times where Jesus just uses his words and someone is healed. Something happens. The wind and the seas obey his words. People are healed. He's laid his hands on people and brought the little girl back from the dead. Even this woman we just saw, he never even interacts with the little girl and the little girl's, the demon that's in the little girl is released. He never even sees her. He doesn't need to do any of the things he does with this guy, so why? He does it anyway. Why? It's for him. It's for the man. It's for the deaf, mute man. He heals him on his terms. He meets him where he is. So first he pulls him away from the crowd. It says multiple people brought him to Jesus. And Jesus himself, we know, rolls deep. Jesus has followers. Jesus has an entourage all the time. Jesus gets away from everybody. He was deaf, and because of that, he couldn't speak well. We all grew up. Kids can be very mean. If you go on social media, adults can be very mean. This man was probably ridiculed his entire life because he couldn't speak well, because he couldn't have a normal interaction. He didn't have normal engagements with people, normal relationships. He's probably been the butt of many, many jokes. Sometimes he probably didn't even realize it. And so Jesus pulls him away from the crowd and says, you're not going to be a spectacle again. This is not a show for everybody else. This is for you. This is just about you. And so he puts his fingers in his ears, and then Jesus spits, and he touches this man's tongue. It's all very tactile. Again, Jesus doesn't need to do it this way. But he's getting down. He's... He's connecting with this man on his level. Because he doesn't want to just heal this man. He wants this man to know that he is known. That he is cared for. That God is present with him. Jesus communicates on this man's level. He isn't going to use words with him. Instead, he uses physical touch. He uses a way to communicate with him that he's going to understand. Jesus enters into this man's cognitive world so that the man can understand that God is about to do something mighty. And we see in verse 34, it says that Jesus, looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epaphatha, let us be open. He sighed. Another way to translate that would be he moaned or he groaned. Jesus looks up to heaven along with this man who is suffering. This man did nothing, as far as we know, did nothing to deserve this suffering. He is just another victim of living in a broken world. Another one of God's creations having to suffer and deal with the consequences of sin in this world. And no matter how many times Jesus has had to deal with this, no matter how many times he has healed somebody with leprosy, he has brought little girls back from the dead, no matter how many times he's had to see and interact with the consequences of sin in this world, every time he has compassion for them knowing full well what he's about to do. He knows this man's about to be completely healed. 
He knows that one day sin is going to be completely destroyed. He knows all of this is temporary, but he sees humanity in pain. He sees his creation in pain. Jesus himself is experiencing it firsthand. And it breaks the heart of Jesus that this man has had to suffer. And he groans in his soul about what this man has had to go through. It's a similar reaction to when Lazarus is dead and he comes to wake Lazarus from the tomb. And before that, Jesus weeps and weeps, unco- weeps loudly, knowing full well he's about to bring his friend back from the dead. Why? Because Jesus sees this is not the way it was supposed to be. He created us for so much more and sin has done so much destruction. And so Jesus prays, he groans and he prays, and the man is healed. And Jesus tells the crowd, don't say anything to anyone, but they can't keep this to themselves, and they go around proclaiming it. The guy himself, I mean, how's he going to not tell everyone everything? It says they are astonished, they are amazed. There's not a space in their brain to comprehend what they just saw. They've never seen anything like this before. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. That phrase, coupled with the way that the man is described in verse 32, Mark is pointing us to the Old Testament. He's pointing us specifically to the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 35, I want to read verses 4 through 6. It should be on the screen. It says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, and, the, and then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Isaiah is prophesying. He's telling the people, you want to know what to look for when you're looking for the Messiah? When you're looking for the promised one, you want to know what to keep your eyes open for? Look for these things. Look for the blind to be able to see. Look for the deaf to be able to hear, and the lame to be able to leap, and the mute be able to sing. The things that Jesus has been doing, look for those things. The Messiah has been doing Messiah work because that's who he is. He is the promised one that comes to save us. There are even Gentiles who see it. It's a Gentile group of people who say this. And they don't understand the theological reality of what they're seeing and experiencing, but they experience it. And if you look at verse 4, you look at the very beginning of that that, um, passage I read. It says, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. Recompense is a fancy word for retribution. So we see Jesus doing the works of the Messiah. He's healing people. The blind can see, the lame can leap, the mute can speak. But where is the vengeance? Where is the recompense? Where is this battle? Where is the retribution? Those things are still to come for Jesus. Because those things happen at the cross. The vengeance and retribution of God against sin gets handled through Jesus at the cross when he takes on the responsibility, the punishment for all sin, every sin throughout all of history. Through Jesus taking on the responsibility for humanity's sin and dying on the cross in our place for us and then rising again to show his power and authority that he has defeated sin and death and hell. He is doing and going to continue to do what the Messiah does because that's who he is. He comes to save. He comes to put an end to the, to the war that we have found ourselves in against God and instead take us from being reverent against God to his sons and daughters.
Jesus comes to save. He comes to meet us where we are in our desperation, in our sickness, in our need, in our exhaustion, in our hopelessness. And God gets involved. God intervenes on our behalf. Jesus did it at the cross, and he continues to do it in our lives. He's paying attention. He gets involved, and sometimes it looks different than what we pray for. It looks different than what we expect. It looks different than our plans and our goals. God says, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do this my way so that you see it's me, that nobody else could do it this way, that nobody else would do it this way, but I am with you and I am for you. God will always step in and do doing the things that are his. He will bring hope and peace and grace because that's who he is and so that's what he does. And it starts with us putting our faith in Christ, putting our faith in Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. That's the first time we get to taste it, the first time we get to experience it. And then going on and living throughout this Christian life, we get to see if we can stop and slow down and see that at first glance, sometimes it doesn't make sense and it's hard and it's just weird sometimes and uncomfortable. We can then step back and say, you know what? That was God moving. God moves and he doesn't always move in the same way every time, but he is always involved. He is always paying attention. He is always doing the things that are his, bringing hope and grace and peace justice because that's who he is that is the God we serve that is the God who is with you and for you that when your alarm clock goes off tomorrow morning and you got to go back to work and go back to school that is the God who is with you and for you that is the God who loves you and is intimately invested and involved in your life the God who shows up and says I am with you and I see your pain and I hear that cry out for help and I will help and I will step in and I will work in your life It's not always the way we picture it. It's not always the way that we think it should happen. And thank God for that, because God's ways are higher and better than ours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, we thank you for texts like this that still matter today. Over and over again, you show us the Bible still matters today. It's still important and valuable because we learn from it. And God, we thank you for times like this when you show us that you are created. You show us that you were when you sent Jesus to this world, that he lived and he interacted and he engaged with this world and all of the broken messiness of it. God, as we still continue to live in this broken, messy world, help us to trust in you. Help us to rely on you. Help us to run to you. And to be okay and to be comforted by the fact that you are going to step in, you are going to get involved, even when it doesn't make sense to us, even when it's different than the way we picture it, than the way we plan it, than the way we ask for it. God, give us the wisdom, give us the, give us the peace to be able to see those times where you move, to not be able to just write it off and, and think that you forgot because you didn't forget. We know that you care, we know that you are for us, we know that you are involved in this world, that you have not just left us to our own devices, but you are intimately involved. And so, God, give us the wisdom, give us the eyes to see when you move in our lives. Lord, as we go into the world, as we interact with family and friends and co-workers and peers, God, help us to be a light in this world. Help us to take these things and take this reality of who you are 
the one who goes to war on our behalf with Satan, the one who steps in and is involved in our lives, help us to take that and use that fire us up, give us the boldness to be able to be those lights in the world you have called us to be, to share our story, to share about how God stepped into our lives to save us, how, he is, how you are continuously stepping into our lives to make us more and more into the image bearers you have created us to be. God, we thank you and we praise you for who you are, for the ways that you act in our world, for the uniqueness of the ways you interact with us. Lord, help us to be mindful of those things. Help us to be focused on those things and see those things and be thankful for those things when we see them in our world. God, we thank you and we praise you. We pray all of this because of you. It's my business. Amen.